Hey everyone, welcome back to El Nino Speaks. I'm here today with a very special guest. If you're into Austrian economics and Bitcoin, you're probably very familiar with Stefan Levera. He's the host of the Stefan Levera podcast, managing director of Swan Bitcoin and co-founder of Ministry of Nodes. To say this guy eats, sleeps and breathes Bitcoin would be an understatement. How are things going, Stefan? Doing well, Jose. I'm here in Sri Lanka right now. And yeah, you're right. I, I really do spend a lot of my time just thinking about Bitcoin, writing about Bitcoin, speaking about Bitcoin. It's all day, every day for me. No, that's great to hear, man. We need those type of people to put in that type of work to get this message across. So yeah, let's dig in to the main course here. You're pretty well known in the Bitcoin community and you stand out for your focus on Austrian economics. Most of my listeners and readers are likely on the same page, more or less, due to the strong overlap with Austrian economics and Bitcoin. If I'm not mistaken, you got into Austrian economics well before getting into Bitcoin. And what would you Correct. say initially got you interested in the school of Austrian economics? So I was about... 14 years old, I was on IRC, Internet Relay Chat. So for those of you who are young, that's like an old school chat room thing. And basically, I was on this Australian politics channel. I grew up in Australia. And there was this guy who kept linking to Mises Daily articles in the politics chat. And I was like, what's all this? Like, what? And I started seeing all this stuff like, oh, what? Anarcho-capitalism? Like, what? how would that wouldn't work? Like, that was in my mind back then. But some of what I was reading started to really make a lot more sense to me. I started reading more about, okay, why is the minimum wage a bad idea? Why is, you know, these other ideas that we obviously accept now, those people who are into Austrian economics accept those ideas. And so it just caused this big jarring contradiction or jarring dissonance between what I was being taught in my school economics and business studies classes versus what I was reading on Mises Daily. And so that was, you know, back then it was called Mises Daily and uh, nowadays, you know, Mises Wire and the Mises blog posts and so on. And so that started my journey of going down the Austrian rabbit hole. Yeah, so at that age, I would read more articles. I wasn't ready to go and read the 900 page, you know, Mises and Rothbard books. <laughs> and then only later did I actually go and go to that level, actually later on reading the proper, you know, theory of money and credit, human action, man, economy, state. Who were to DeSoto's money, bank credit, and economic cycles, and you know all sorts of other Austrian books. So that was, I guess, that's the high level of my journey down the Austrian rabbit hole. Yeah, that's pretty interesting because I can kind of relate to that in a sense because how I got into Austrian economics and just like general libertarianism was through actually like a sports forum where there was like one user that would constantly post like Ron Paul related content. And eventually I just took a look at one of the videos. And from that point forward, I fell down a rabbit hole that I would never come out of again. But yeah, it's interesting to hear how people find yeah. these type of movements and whatnot. Yeah. Now, just looking back, because I come from like a historical background and all, and I just love to like see like the way these like technology develops and like Bitcoin was obviously created in 2009. And if I recall correctly, it wasn't until like 2013-ish that it like really started to take off. But I actually got 
introduced to Bitcoin through Michael Goldstein, aka Bitstein, in 2011. Some listeners might recognize him. Yeah. He was a university friend of mine, and he's pretty instrumental, and I'd say continues to be instrumental in bolstering my knowledge about Bitcoin. In your case, how were you initially exposed to Bitcoin in particular? Yeah, so for me, like most people, the first time I heard about Bitcoin, I ignored it or just disregarded it, right? Like I thought it was World of Warcraft Gold or Fortnite V-Bucks or just some stupid in-game money. Who cares about that? It was only later in December of 2012, I ran across an article by Eric Voorhees. And Voorhees actually in that article spelled out the libertarian case for Bitcoin. And that was my moment. So basically, from then on, I just couldn't stop thinking about Bitcoin, writing about Bitcoin, doing Bitcoin things, basically. His explanation was what helped me see it as, oh, wait, this is actually a challenge to state money. It's going to help stop central banks. And so I, being a libertarian, anti-fiat money, I saw great value in that idea. And so from then on, I was just hooked. Now, in those earlier days, there was different messages out there in the community, right? There were people talking about remittance using Bitcoin and people buying alpaca socks or buying things with Bitcoin. And of course, there was also this idea of, hey, using it to store your value. And so certainly in those days, it was more speculative. It felt more speculative. It wasn't as much of a thing. It wasn't as much of a, hey, this thing is going to be volatile, but it'll come back, right? So for example, it was just a crazy, crazy roller coaster ride trying to, you know, hodl through the craziness. But that was fundamentally how I came across it. And so I viewed it. And having already been reading Austrian economics, this then helped color my view of Bitcoin. And so when I was going down the Bitcoin rabbit hole, I was coming across some of the writing of people like Tour de Mista, Trace Mayer, obviously Bitstein and Pierre Rochard. And back in those days, Daniel Krawitz from the Nakamoto Institute. And I was also kind of going back down some of the Austrian monetary economics rabbit holes. So previously, I had read some Austrian economics and things, but I hadn't gone as deep and thought as much about the monetary aspects of it. And so I think after finding Bitcoin and as part of the learning process for that, that then caused me to go further and read more of the Austrian monetary writing. So I think it was only after that that I eventually ended up reading uh, Huerta de Soto's book, Money, Bank, Credit, and Economic Cycles, and a bunch of these other Austrian texts and books. Very interesting. Yeah, like looking at Bitcoin, like overall, it does have a like very strong libertarian free market undertone to it. And I venture to say also like crypto anarchists as well. However, I have noticed just looking from afar, because I will admit I'm not like part of the Bitcoin community, I'd said I'm adjacent to it, but like, just like from a bird's eye view, you are seeing some people get into it for other reasons. What would you say are some of the other reasons that people get into Bitcoin that's not like politically like related? I see. So in some cases you're seeing like the macro bros, basically, you know, all the macro (laughs) people coming into it because they, they don't necessarily have a political you know, they're not necessarily libertarians politically. They are just looking at it from a purely, hey, what can I do to trade this thing or hold some of it? And so you're seeing some of that. 
and in fairness, that's been a few years. So, you know, and some of the macro bros were relatively early or they kind of had a little bit of an earlier take on it than some other people. But then they also didn't necessarily have the, hadn't dived deep enough into it to have conviction. So a lot of them might have bought a little piece of it and then sold a few years later, then now come back into it and say, oh, yeah, see, I've been in Bitcoin since 2013 or 2012. And it's kind of like, mm, but did you really hold for that whole time, right? That's an example. There are others who are coming into it from, say, a progressive point of view. There might be some who advocate from a human rights perspective. And I mean, even though I'm more in the, I'm probably more like you, I'm in the more right wing libertarian camp myself, but I can see others coming in from, say, a more progressive viewpoint where they see it like, oh, it's equality or equity and justice from their perspective. Some of the Bitcoin developers, are, in fact, are probably a little bit, well, it's a mix, but some of them are probably, I would say, arguably progressive in certain aspects of their beliefs, as opposed to conservative or more right-wing style. So there's a range of perspectives. I think there is a bit of a push now to try to make it like a bipartisan thing. That said, I see Bitcoin as just fundamentally having right-wing outcomes, right? essentially like libertarian outcomes. I think whether you are left-wing or right-wing or whatever, I just think it will have essentially free market outcomes. And so if you respect the natural order, as typical right-wing people do, then I think Bitcoin is the right one because essentially Bitcoin is using proof of work. It's sort of showing that example or it's using that in some sense, it's like a respect of the natural order, right? So Mm -hmm. if you were to compare, say, Bitcoin proof of work versus Ethereum moving to this idea of proof of stake, which is kind of more about like, oh, see, the people at the top should set the rules. That's really more like an Ethereum idea or at least the way it's pushing, right? I'm sure the Ethereum people might disagree and they might say, oh, no, we're not going to go that way. But I think proof of stake will just, given the incentives of the system, will just necessarily centralize, meaning the people who are the validators will be more known and will potentially leverage more angles of censorship down onto the system or try to change the system, right? They don't even, they're not even that clear on what is actually the monetary supply from their point of view. Now, they might say, fine, we don't care about being money. They just want to do world computer or something else. But it's an interesting conflict there because I think in some ways, the Bitcoin people tend to or want to acknowledge that there is a natural order, that there are hierarchies and they're not necessarily... You can't necessarily stop those things. And in some cases, they're a good thing, like that some of those hierarchies are just necessary for the way we work as humans, that we can't just kind of get rid of them all, which is kind of, I see that as a more progressive idea, right? This idea that we're just going to get rid of all the hierarchies and just, you know, or we're oh, going yeah, to try to go against the natural order. You know, it's like blank slateism, right? It's like various mm-hmm. ideas about, you know, that you and I are not born with different bodies, different brains, different capabilities. You know, or is the classic Thomas Sowell quote, right? The same man is not even equal to himself on different days, right? Some days you might wake up and you're really switched on and other days you're a bit more sluggish. We are not even equal to ourselves, depending on that. And so this idea that we're all just going to be equal, I think that's like a more progressive idea. Whereas those of us who are more right-wing, conservative, libertarians, we tend to have more the tragic view that we are all flawed and fallen in some way and that we're all different. And that's just part of life. 100% agreed. One of like the, the beauties of Bitcoin is how it fosters what Ludwig von Mises would describe as social cooperation, where you could bring people with divergent like 
ideological interests and backgrounds together, but underneath the surface, it's still like is like a technology that fosters decentralization and preserves like a natural hierarchy. And those type of implications very likely will not sit well with a lot of people that are obsessed with social engineering. And I like how you mentioned blank slate because that the blank slate is one of like the fundamental pillars of this entire managerial order that we live under. And it's like basically how you can justify all sorts of diversity programs and other things to promote equality of outcomes and all that stuff. Now, there are always interesting fissures within groups of like people, especially like in like the libertarian circles, because obviously libertarians tend to be overrepresented in the Bitcoin space, though I have seen a significant minority of libertarians that are opposed to Bitcoin and even the broader cryptocurrency scene, but that's like a whole nother can of worms. But anyways, for these libertarians that object to Bitcoin, what are like the main reasons that you've seen that they put forth of why they're against Bitcoin in general? So some of them are gold bugs and haven't been able to let go of gold. They might have a fascination for physical things and not be as technically savvy or willing to take that leap and understand that, well, all money is becoming digital, right? Even the fiat money you have in, in your account is mostly digital. It's probably only 5% is actually cash and coins. The rest of it is you know, numbers on a bank account somewhere where maybe many libertarians had that attachment to gold and to the gold standard. And so unfortunately, they couldn't get past that. Other libertarians I've spoken to, they do that whole thing of like, oh yeah, see, I mined some in the early days. And then I then I ask the next question, okay, but did you hold? And oh, no, I sold it. You know, it's this kind of dilettante approach of just kind of trying lots of little bits and pieces of things, but not actually really digging deep. So I think that is the case for a lot of other libertarians where maybe they might have lots of other issues that they are thinking about and they're not they haven't really taken the time to go deep on Bitcoin. So, you know, they might be talking about, you know, libertarian drug law reform or some other aspect of libertarianism, right? Like being anti-war or being, you know, civil asset forfeiture or zoning or, you know, taxes and regulations or whatever other, you know, or vaping or other, other, other things like that, where if they actually took the time and went deep on learning Bitcoin, they would see that essentially a world on a Bitcoin standard is a world with far more libertarian values and far more of a libertarian outcome than what we have today. Many people have tried years and years and years trying to do the standard political campaigning and activism approach. And how, where has it gotten us? Most of the world has just become more and more statist and if anything, the protections that we used to enjoy as a society, things like the presumption of innocence before guilt, things like greater freedom for our property rights in you know, the last, say, 100 years, were a lot more respected than they are today in 2020 and 2021, where basically all of our property rights are up for debate by some health technocrat who has very little skin in the game and very little exposure to if he or she makes a proclamation to ban certain things or restrict certain businesses, they don't feel any downside of that. They're still getting their paycheck. The health technocrat gets more fame and more prestige out of it. So it cuts against the very idea of social cooperation. And so it just fundamentally, people have lost 
that sense of respect for other people's rights. And I think some of that is arguably deliberate in the way that the schooling and the education works. Some of that is just like the incentive of the system. It's like a confluence of interests that all these people want to sort of take over the system and corrode and take away the protections that we used to enjoy. Yeah, I agree with all of that. In fact, Bitcoin is actually like, I believe, a exercise in practical free market libertarianism that allows us to get to that kind of end state without always having to like engage in really unproductive political activity. And I think that's yeah. what, how I try to sell it to people, especially like in the libertarian space that tend to get jaded with a lot of like the political scene. Now, let's shift gears a bit. Let's go into like more of like Bitcoin usage because you'll see, especially I think like in the embryonic stages of Bitcoin, there was a generation gap, if you will, in terms of like the interest manifested towards it. Though I have noticed it has somewhat narrowed in the last five years, especially. And in your case, how would you go about getting say like your parents, older acquaintances or friends to like, say, move some of their retirement portfolio into Bitcoin or just in general, get more accustomed to like using Bitcoin in their everyday lives. Yeah. 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 That's, I think that's the key question is trying to get more people to understand that they should hold more Bitcoin. And so it's often a softly, softly approach. It's often you know how sometimes you can't necessarily convince people head on. You almost have to ask them questions like a Socratic method, right? Asking them questions about things to help them come to their own conclusion on what actually is a better store of value for the long term. And then you start opening that question up. And so I think there are different ways to go about that conversation. You can start by talking about, for example, what's the state of inflation where you are? What's the cost of food like? What's the cost of housing like? What's the cost of cars and getting around? And what are you doing about it, importantly? And if they are just going with the herd and it's all about property investment or stock tips or meme coins or meme stocks, meme stonks, then <laughs> they need to have you know, some awareness given to them about what Bitcoin is and why Bitcoin has been superior to basically all of those things in terms of its ability to store and secure someone's value for the longer term. And so you can use statistics. There are websites. One example is casebitcoin.com. Another one is strategy.com. That's by Michael Saylor, that one. And you can see charts or graphs and statistics comparing the return rates. So as an example, if you go as an example on casebitcoin.com, there's a chart or a table there rather showing a breakdown of returns. So you can say, look, if you held Bitcoin for 10 years, what would your annual return per year have been? Well, as we speak today, 19th of December, 2021, that number is 155%. What would you have gotten if you were in gold? 1% per year. So if you had been in the S&P 500, you would have gotten about 14%. And then if you were in, say, bonds, you would have gotten maybe 2.3%. So Bitcoin at 155% is absolutely smashing all the others. Now, to be fair, it may not sustain 155% for the next 10 years. It might be something more like 60 or 70%. But even still, that's incredible compared to what people are otherwise getting. And so 
people need to really think through the implications of that. If they could have been holding Bitcoin instead of holding property, instead of holding stocks, think how much better they would be. Or another way to go about that is, for example, when people go and use those DCA calculators. We, ha- we actually have one on our front page of swan.com. You can go there and basically punch in, okay, imagine I had been putting in you know, $100 per week for five years. How much would I have put in and how much would I have now? And so on that front page, if you go to swan.com, you can literally type that in. And so as an example, you might have put in, you know, $36,000 and you might have like hundreds of thousands of dollars now. So that's an example. Actually, you know what? Let me run that number right now, just as an example. And so you can, that's one way you can show people. So as an example, you can ask them, look, when did you hear about Bitcoin? And imagine you had been putting in $100 a week. So as an example, just, just to put those numbers out there, if you had been doing over the last five years, $100 per week, you would have put in 26,000 USD. And what would that be in fiat terms now? $254,000, right? So those numbers, once you show them to someone, then they start thinking, okay, now it's time to start thinking more seriously about it. Maybe I need to at least take a small position. Yeah, well put overall. I think that's kind of like the, the approach that people need to take with Bitcoin because I see like some similarities as well with, a lot of political evangelicism with how people will just try to like instantly give people all the red pills and then they just get overwhelmed. And sometimes it's just gradually acclimating people to it and just showing that how it's like in their self-interest because Bitcoin, the unique selling point of Bitcoin is that it will like boost your wealth and also just protect it too from a lot of economic and political elements, which is something that most people desire. And it has like a very strong value proposition in that regard. Now, we have seen like the Bitcoin community experience like pretty impressive growth in the last decade. I could just like remember the university events that I would attend where it would just be Bitstein, myself, and maybe four other people is just talking about Bitcoin. And now you have like wholesale conferences like selling out with a head of state in Naib Bukele giving a talk via video conference. Now, what would you say are like the most significant changes you've seen in the Bitcoin scene when you first entered and what it looks like now in the present? So certainly as time goes on, it becomes more and more diluted in terms of people who are really hardcore about the values and the ethos. But that said, some people who are coming in new are very quickly getting up to speed now because there's podcasts like mine and others out there. There's articles and better resources available if you know where to look. That said, it's very confusing because if you just type Bitcoin on YouTube, you'll probably find all these random altcoin promoters and the people doing soy face, you know, and doing all these like (laughs) stupid facial expressions and like, oh my God, Bitcoin is crashing. And like, you'll see that kind of thing. And the TA, you know, the quote unquote technical analysis people and, you know, the crayon drawers and so on. Whereas (laughs) for them to actually find people who are writing and speaking of things of substance around the economics, the technology, the philosophy of Bitcoin, that's a little harder for people to find. But once they do find us, or if they find the likes of us over at Swan Bitcoin or other Bitcoin-only providers, then they're a lot more likely to get the message in terms of, hey, this is what this is really about, in terms of the ethos and so on. So that's one way to see it. I think that we are seeing 
more and more specialization into different areas. So for example, we are seeing like lightning network and different like mining communities and different communities around say people who are into privacy in Bitcoin area. There's people who are into all sorts of different, you know, aspects of Bitcoin, you know, so we're seeing it sort of go down into different areas, but at the same time, we're seeing a very solid and thriving meetup scene and conference scene. And I think that has been phenomenal to see the growth in that. So I'm looking forward to that. I mean, there's some big events coming up like Bitcoin 2022. I'm looking forward to going there. I'll be a speaker there. And we're just seeing a lot more, I think, clarity as well because of the quality of the education material. That said, of course, some people come in and they they came in through something else, right? Like whether it was NFTs or some other thing. And then they start thinking about Bitcoin. Yeah, it's how things generally go with like movements where once they get bigger, you get different crowds of people. But like with the, the thing about Bitcoin is that the technology remains the same and it's heading towards more decentralization. And I really don't give it much thought about like who's like joining in the movement because there's always going to be people that come and go, but like the technology is there and its adoption is really what matters at the end of the day. If people find use of it, regardless of like the reasoning and rationales they have behind it, to me, what matters most is that there's like a bigger network and that people just start opting out of like the whole fiat system in general. Now, always when we're talking about like novel technologies and everything, you will find the typical like doubters, concern trolls, and other people that like to talk about potential threats to Bitcoin. Yeah. Then these hypothetical scenarios range like, like from EMP attacks to governments banning the use of Bitcoin. Some of these scenarios are pretty absurd in my estimation. Nevertheless, things do happen in this crazy clown world and Generally, it behooves us to at least be prepped for the worst. But like in your view, what do you think poses like a, the most credible threat to Bitcoin in the present and not too distant future? Yeah, so I think it might be around people not taking the time to build out the technology in ways that actually respect self-sovereignty. So that could be a risk in the future. Maybe in the future, if a lot of people are using custodial coins that said that doesn't necessarily impact the people who are holding their own keys and running their own bitcoin node so i think that's definitely something that's there i would say people in the bitcoin community are pretty good about generally advocating that people hold their own keys and run their own bitcoin node but of course there are other individuals out there and the message of convenience of like oh hey just leave your coins here you don't need, you don't need to hold your own coins so that is something that over time could become a risk Maybe in the future, potentially, governments, if they were to try to do some kind of concerted attack, although I think it's unlikely, I think it's more likely that we end up building enough of a group of interested individuals, whether that is individuals who are going to vote for certain Bitcoin-friendly policies and politicians who see the writing on the wall and see that we need to support this thing, or otherwise it's going to be to our own detriment if we don't support it. because there's going to be jobs and opportunities and investment coming into this space. And therefore, as a government, you need to be supportive of it. And so I think that's where the really forward nations like the El Salvador's of the world are a big step ahead. 
Yeah, I agree about this. I, I like the proactive mindset of a lot of people in the Bitcoin community, how they definitely tell people to run your own nodes and have their own private keys to just take like extreme ownership, if you will, so as to secure the network because you actually have like skin in the game. When you have like a viable alternative to fiat money, it doesn't do you any favors just trying to outsource everything to other parties. It makes more sense for people to get like invested not only like in acquiring the Bitcoin, but also like kind of securing the network because this is a pretty big deal. And it's a, I, I'd argue it's a civilizational changing project. Now, Bitcoin adoption is pretty much kind of like the alpha and omega to the viability of the currency as a legitimate alternative to fiat monies around the world. What would you say are the biggest impediments to broader Bitcoin adoption and how can those obstacles be overcome in your view? So I think a big part of it is just education of the masses, as in now I'm not necessarily saying we have to go out there and try to educate the masses because I think it's a little bit more like the remnant idea that Ron Paul spoke about and the whole, you know, I think that essay by Albert J. Nock, right? Great essay, by the way. Yeah, I think that yeah, it's a great read. And I think it's well worth thinking about who is best out there. And so I think it's it's more like we're trying to save the people who can be saved. Not everyone can be. And that's sad, it's unfortunate, but unfortunately a lot of people have to learn the hard way. And so the people who who can be taught, let's try to teach those people. Hey, this is what you should do to, you know, protect your wealth and to secure your value and to be able to still transact in a world in clown world times where they are constantly looking for ways to leverage more control, whether that's to create more social credit systems like CCP style, or whether it's to try to tie that in with central bank digital currencies, which are control coins or surveillance coins, and use that and tie those together to make sure that all of us plebs are staying in line and not buying anything that our authorities don't want us to, or saying things that they don't want us to, I think that's really where it's going. And so in terms of how do we respond to some of that, I think part of it is just education. Part of it is just putting the tools out there and constantly improving the tools, whether that is making it easy to use a Bitcoin wallet, whether that is using Bitcoin hardware wallets to secure our long-term savings and storage, whether it's making it easy to spend and receive on the Lightning Network, for example. So Bitcoin has a thing called the Lightning Network that allows us to transact very cheaply, very quickly, very easily. You can use it easily on wallets like Moon. That's M-U-U-N.com. That's one example. Another one is Breeze. That's B-R-E-E-Z.technology. And another one is Phoenix Wallet. So those are some easy wallets to get started. And that's an easy way just to get started with Lightning. And you'll see it's very quick, very easy to spend and receive on those wallets. And then over time, as that improves, then we'll start to see more functionality and more possibilities being made open to people. So as an example, if you look even at Bitcoin Beach, so this is El Zonte down in El Salvador, they created a wallet and it's like a community custodial wallet. It does Lightning and also they use a multi-signature for the on-chain storage. So they get the best of both worlds in that way. Now, yes, there's certain trade-offs around that, but it still makes sense for the people of El Zonte to use 
the Bitcoin Beach wallet for them if they can't afford to have their own channels and their own fully more sovereign wallet. So that's an approach. We might see more community banking come up. We might see more and more people who are able to be the infrastructure for their family and friends. And so in the Bitcoin community, we'll call this the Uncle Jim idea. So you might be an Uncle Jim running your node and then the other people, your family and your friends maybe might be piggybacking off your node. And so there are different ways to do that. And there are people running hosted nodes as an example. So they are hosting nodes for professional Bitcoin companies as an example. And that might be a Lightning node or it might be a BTC Pay node. So that is a BTC Pay server, which is like running your own payment processor, but also having your own little web server as well that helps you deal with things like if you want to take payment. So as an example, Jose, for you, let's say you wanted to, you can spin up your own BTC pay server and take payment from your clients in Bitcoin, and it's your own self-hosted thing. And so you're not reliant on anyone else to receive those payments. And there's different ways to set that BTC pay server up. So for example, you might set it up using your own literally your own physical hardware, although that's a little bit more technical, or maybe you could buy an an existing piece of hardware that's already like a pre-built box. So for example, like a noddle, like nodl.it, that's one example there. They've got the site there. I've I've interviewed the guys. And then another example is to use like a hosted node, like Lunar Node or Voltage or Noddle Cloud as well. So those are examples where they can host it, but you still hold the keys. And so that's really interesting. And I think that's the world we might be moving into where more and more people start to see the opportunity. You you could be in any different country around the world, but work online and take your payment in Bitcoin. And then you can use the likes of bitrefill.com and others to spend Bitcoin. And then you can use the vouchers on those websites. So even if the website doesn't directly take Bitcoin, you can still spend Bitcoin using those vouchers. So for example, they've got, you know, hotels.com gift vouchers, which you can use to buy hotel stays or Another example is cheapair.com. You can fly and pay Bitcoin for the flights. So these are all just little examples, but the idea is more and more services like this and build out in those directions will help create a scenario where more and more people can create their own little Bitcoin circular economy or whether they can just use it as a part of their toolbox to importantly save their value and send and receive. Well, to put a bookmark in this conversation, what resources would you recommend for people who are just getting into Bitcoin to learn about the technology, acquire it, and then like just use it and become a part of the broader Bitcoin ecosystem? Yeah, of course. So sailor.org, there's a course called Bitcoin for Everyone. So if you just go to sailor.org and search Bitcoin, you'll see one of the courses there is by me. It's actually a free online course. It's a not-for-profit fully, you know, everything is free and open source there. Well, free and uh, open in terms of rather open in terms of copyright licensing and things. So that's a free course I curated. Uh, another way is of, obviously is to listen to my podcast. People can search me, Stefan Levera podcast. There's all sorts of books out there. I really like the Bitcoin Standard by our friend Safetyne. And that's a must read. There are all sorts of resources over at swan.com as well. So for example, swanbitcoin.com slash free book and the listeners get a free copy of Inventing Bitcoin, which is a free book. And honestly, it's a really great intro to Bitcoin in terms of explaining some of the technical aspects of Bitcoin, but in a in a layman accessible way. So it's like explaining the technical part without being technical. So that's actually a really good book for people out there who want to learn a bit more about really what Bitcoin is. And of course, 
I think following some of the discussion on Bitcoin Twitter, I think is another way as well. So people who are interested to see who are good people to follow on Twitter for Bitcoin, I would say go to this website. It's hive.one. So that's H-I-V-E dot O-N-E slash Bitcoin. And so if you look at, say, the top 50 or the top 100 on there, those are influential and generally educational Bitcoin accounts to follow. Stefan, it was an absolute pleasure chatting with you. You mentioned your podcast, but are there any other websites or forums where my listeners could keep up with your latest work? Right. Uh, yes, I probably mainly stefanlevera.com. I do occasionally write for other outfits and organizations like Bitcoin Magazine. And I've, I've actually contributed with Mises Institute before. But I think the main way to follow my work is stefanlevera.com or follow me on Twitter at stefanlevera. Awesome. Thank you so much, Stefan. And with that, folks, El Nino has spoken.